Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 207. Today's big Bible question, how does the gospel transform people and society? So, hello, friends. Happy and blessed Wednesday to all of you. If you're one of our Alaskan listeners, and there are a few of you out there, hope you're okay today as your state was hit last night by the strongest earthquake that we've had in the entire world for all of 2020. A 7.8 trembler that hit about 60 miles south of Perryville. Now, as a resident of California now, I pay much more attention to earthquakes these days than I used to. In fact, we had a 3.5 uh, earthquake just tonight, about 20 miles away from us, though I didn't feel it. I've yet to feel an earthquake, even though they sort of happen all around us. They're just uh, not very strong in our area. Now, back when our family lived in Alabama a couple of years ago, I paid lots of attention to snow and tornadoes weather-wise, but there just aren't many snowflakes or twisters in north-central California, so I just kind of keep up with the earthquake reporting. Today, we are reading Judges chapter 5, Acts chapter 9, Jeremiah 18, and Mark chapter 4, and we're discussing how the Word of God does not behave like an explosively powerful thing like an earthquake or a grenade or a missile but is much more organic, bringing transformation from the inside out rather than impacting from the outside in. So every now and then, I think I've told you guys this before, I spend a couple of bucks here and there on Facebook to promote a podcast post with the goal of maybe picking up some new listeners. Now, I always, or at least here lately, I try to narrow my advertising on Facebook to just focus on Christians and usually set it up to try to focus on just serious Christians, like ones who like uh, John Piper or Tim Keller or something like that. Now, you might ask, well, why don't you focus on atheists or lost people or whatever, or some sort of broader group? And the answer is, while I have that done that in the past, and I do that every now and with the show, here lately I try to only advertise to Christians because the comments and the responses of many atheists and non-believers is really, really aggressive, and they act extremely agitated to get an ad in their feed. And when I talk about I spend a few bucks, I literally mean a few bucks. I mean, I'm not sitting on piles of cash here like uh, Scrooge McDuck. And the response I get, even when I'm advertising towards serious Christians, I get a really aggressive, profanity-laced a uh, group of people who comment very negatively on the post, and I try to moderate those, sometimes try to engage in stuff like that. But, you know, doing a daily podcast, parenting five kids, pastoring a church full-time, and trying to invent a time machine honestly just doesn't leave me a lot of time to engage uh, in extended debates with people online. So I only share with the skeptics when I have time to uh, be fair and fully engage in conversation with them. Now, recently I posted a podcast on the resurrection from just a few days ago and discussed the Lithuanian argument, which sort of posits that the way in which Christianity spread so far and so fast, historically speaking, indicates that something significant and profound happened at the outset, which propelled the message forward and outward. Well, the Bible's explanation for that significant and profound event is the resurrection of Jesus, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, whether you believe the Bible or not, if you're a skeptic of the resurrection of Jesus, historically speaking, you need to be able to explain how the message of Jesus was so transformative 
so quickly in such a broad and varied swath of the world. Now, the Lithuanian argument is not an argument for the resurrection based on a particular scripture verse or something like that, but it's actually based on the historical spread of Christianity. That said, the aggressive skeptics, not reading the article at all, of course, scoffed at it and said that I was just using the old tactic of saying that I believe Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible said he rose from the dead. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe that the Bible teaches Jesus rose from the dead, and I do believe Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. But that said, the Bible says that I believe it end of story is not at all the focus of the Lithuanian argument, but rather something like history shows Christianity spread this fast and this far, and the resurrection and Pentecost is a good explanation for that unprecedented and inexplicable spread of the good news. So there's another difficult-to-explain reason uh, or explanation for the spread of Christianity, and that is that the message of Christianity, the gospel or the good news itself, is alive. It's active. It's organic. As I was typing this out, another earthquake in Alaska just hit. You guys hang in up there. It sounds like it's about a six on the Richter scale. But back to the gospel. Here's how Jesus explains the dynamic in our focus passage today of how the Word of God is living and active and organic. He says this in Mark 4, 26-29, The kingdom of God is like this, Jesus said. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. Well, the word of God is living and active. The gospel is like a seed, and it grows, and it brings transformation supernaturally because it has life in it, and it brings life. Now, let's first go read Mark 4 and listen to Jesus talk about the word of God and the gospel, and then we're going to turn to Tim Keller and listen to him sort of teach us one of the ways in which the gospel transforms. So Mark chapter 4 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible, again Jesus began to teach by the sea and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down while the whole crowd was by the sea on the shore. He taught them many things in parables and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. Still other seed fell on good ground, and it grew up, producing fruit, then increased 30, 60, and 100 times. Then he said, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. He answered them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables so that they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. Then he said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. 
Others are like seeds sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like seeds sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those like seeds sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit. Thirty, sixty, and a hundred times what was sown. He also said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? For there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed, and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and more will be added to you. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. A man scatters seed on the ground, he sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that, when sown upon the soil, is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. He was speaking the word to them with many many parables like these as they were able to understand. He did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he explained everything to his own disciples. On that day when evening had come, he told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion, so they woke him up and said to him, Teacher! Don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified, and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him? So listen, I feel weird doing this, but I want to put a plug out there for Mark chapter 4. This is a crucial passage in the Bible for understanding so much of Christianity and the teachings of Jesus. I mean, we've talked about it before on the podcast, and I linked it in our uh, show notes today at BibleReadingPodcast.com when we talked previously about Mark chapter 4. But Mark 4 is a linchpin. It's a cornerstone, a keynote part of the Bible. In fact, Jesus points us to this when he says, if you don't understand this parable, guys, how are you going to understand any parable? Mark 4 is a key to understanding a lot of the teachings of Jesus, and so we need to read it, read it, read it, and really understand it, because it's crucial for us to understand the power and the organic nature and the supernatural nature of the Word of God. If we don't understand it, church, we'll focus most of our efforts and time in building the best programs, the best building, and spending a lot of money to spread the good news, and... I don't think that's a powerful way of doing it. It'll build building bigger buildings. It'll reach people, but it won't bring the internal, eternal change. I want to say that again. It won't bring the internal, eternal change 
that must come through the gospel. We can't enhance the gospel with our buildings and programs and money. The gospel is is a standalone. It is empowered as much as it's going to be empowered, and it's supernaturally empowered. Um, and we need to lean on that as our message to a lost and dying world. So let's listen to Tim Keller's wisdom here on how the gospel or the good news of Jesus transforms. And he says, The kingdom of God comes by hearing, therefore be careful. Take heed how you hear, says Jesus. Let's look at two principles or two sides. First of all, let me just show you what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God comes by hearing. Earthly kingdoms always come through coercion and force. They never come through hearing. Earthly leaders almost always are great at getting a hearing, but the kingdom of God comes to people who are good at giving a hearing. So let me just show you, says Keller, how radically different this is. Listening well, listening deeply, listening and understanding is the primary skill of the kingdom of God. Without listening well, you can't enter it. The power of the kingdom can't come into your life. Without it, you can't proceed. Without it, the kingdom power won't flow out through other people. Your ability to sit down and listen, your ability to take in what somebody else is saying, your ability to truly listen and hear the word of God is the most important ability. That's not true in earthly kingdoms. If I look at most leaders I know, and a lot of them you know, you work under them or you follow them, or maybe they're in leadership in the country, they are great at getting a hearing. They're great at sound bites. They're great at lobbying, at picketing, at getting the message out and advertising. They're great at coming into a room and into a meeting and getting people to do what they want. In other words, the best leaders in earthly kingdoms are bad listeners. If they listened too well, they wouldn't be dynamic enough. They wouldn't be decisive enough. They'd be pushed aside by somebody else who is a worse listener than they are because that's where you get your power in earthly kingdoms, by talking rather than listening, by putting forth, by getting a hearing rather than giving a hearing. Let me tell you something, says Keller. I have been unusually convicted recently in studying this particular particular truth. Ministers, you see, are just so easily conformed to the pattern of the world. The kingdom of God comes by listening, by hearing, by receiving, by taking in, by understanding. Every other kingdom I know moves forward by coercion and by the people who do not listen and don't want to listen, don't know how to listen, and are good at making other people listen to them. Now, here's the reason why. The reason why is because the secret of the kingdom of God is the seed, and the seed, Jesus has told us, is teaching. It's the word of the kingdom. It's the Christian message. It's the Bible. It's information. The kingdom of God moves forward on the basis of hearing the truth, whereas human kingdoms and earthly kingdoms always move forward on the basis of coercion and force. Look, when Alexander the Great brought his kingdom to a town, everybody knew it. There were only two kinds of people left in a town after Alexander got his kingdom there, people in his kingdom and people who were dead. That was it. You either died fighting or you were in the kingdom. It was overwhelming. That's even true in democracies, though, you know? If 51% of the population votes for one person for president, 49% for another person for president, what happens is the 49% who voted against the person have to serve. They have to submit to him because even democracy is a coercion of the majority. The kingdom of God, though, says Keller, is different. It's like a seed and not like a boulder. When the boulder comes to hit the ground, it smashes the ground, but the seed comes in very quietly. 
The boulder transforms the ground, revolutionizes it externally. The seed revolutionizes the ground internally. The boulder comes in and does it suddenly and coercively. The seed comes and does it organically, gradually, and gently. The boulder actually just breaks the land. But the seed transforms the soil into a garden or forest. It transforms it by reorienting and rechanneling its energies, its nutrients, and its minerals into life-giving processes. The boulder ultimately doesn't really change the land. It just breaks it with sheer power. The seed transforms it completely and ultimately transforms it more completely. It's not superficial the way a boulder does it. In the same way human kingdoms, whether it's an Alexander the Great bloody kingdom, or whether it's a democratic process, only superficially can affect you. It's done through coercion or manipulation. The kingdom of God comes by getting the truth and having it penetrate the heart. The weakest little thing like a seed that enters in and doesn't seem to make any difference at all uh, works like this. You plant a seed and eventually it will change the entire field. Dynamite can't change it the way a seed can. A boulder can't change it the way a seed can. Kingdoms of the earth happen through force. Jesus Christ says, don't you understand my kingdom is going to triumph through love, not force? It's going to create loving obedience, not slaves. That's the reason why it says that the soil is really transformed. The soil that is really transformed is the man, the woman who has a heart that takes the truth in and understands it, understands it. Jesus says, I'm not out for slaves. Animals don't understand. Slaves don't understand. Computers don't understand. I'm out to change you from the inside out. Eventually, that crazy, weak little thing, the message of the kingdom, will eventually cover the entire world and wipe away all tears and every single bit of evil. Therefore, for you to hear it and to rehear it and to rehear it and to understand it and take it in, for you to study the word of God and to take it in and hold on to it and talk to yourself about it, that is the kingdom of God. It comes in a way that looks really strange, but eventually it will change everything, just like a seed. Well, that was a good word from our friend of the podcast, Tim Keller. Now let's go to Judges chapter 5 and Deborah's song, and I'm going to bless you by singing it to you. Okay, actually, I'm not going to do that. Judges chapter 5, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang, When the leaders lead in Israel, when the people volunteer, blessed be the Lord. Listen, kings, pay attention, princes, I will sing to the Lord. I will sing praises to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you came from Seir, when you marched from the fields of Edom, the earth trembled, the skies poured rain, and the clouds poured water. The mountains melted before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the main roads were deserted, because travelers kept to the side roads. Villagers were deserted. Villages were deserted. They were deserted in Israel, until I, Deborah, arose, a mother in Israel. Israel chose new gods. Then there was war in the city gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with the leaders of Israel, with the volunteers of the people. Blessed be the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, who sit on saddle blankets, and who travel on the road, give praise. Let them tell the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous deeds of his villagers in Israel. With the voices of the singers at the watering places, then the Lord's people went down to the city gates. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and take your prisoner, son of Abinoam. 
Then the survivors came down to the nobles. The Lord's people came down to me against the warriors. Those who, those with their roots in Amalek came from Ephraim. Benjamin came with your people after you. The leaders came down from Machir. And those who carry a martial staff came from Zebulon. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Issachar was with Barak. They were under his leadership in the valley. There was great searching of heart among the clans of Reuben. Why did you sit among the sheep pens, listening to the playing of pipes for the flocks? There was great searching of heart among the clans of Reuben. Gilead remained beyond the Jordan. Dan, why did you linger at the ships? Asher remained at the seashore and stayed in his harbors. The people of Zebulon defied death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. Kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. But they did not plunder the silver. The stars fought from the heavens. The stars fought with Sisera from their paths. The river Kishon swept them away. The ancient river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, in strength. The horse's hooves then hammered the galloping, galloping of his his stallions. Curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. Bitterly curse her inhabitants. For they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord with the warriors. Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. She is most blessed among tent-dwelling women. He asked for water, she gave him milk. She brought him cream in a majestic bowl. She reached for a tent peg, her right hand for a workman's hammer. Then she hammered Sisera, she crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. He collapsed, he fell, he lay down between her feet. He collapsed, he fell between her feet. Where he collapsed, there he fell dead. Sisera's mother looked through the window. She peered through the lattice, crying out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why don't I hear the hoofbeats of his horses? Her wisest princesses answered her. She even answers herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil, a girl or two for each warrior? The spoil of colored garments for Sisera. The spoil of an embroidered garment or two for my neck. Lord, may all your enemies perish as Sisera did, but may those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its strength. And the land had peace for 40 years. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house. There I will reveal my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working away at the wheel. But the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand, so he made it into another jar as it seemed right for him to do. The word of the Lord came to me, house of Israel, can I not treat you as this potter treats his clay? This is the Lord's declaration. Just like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. At one more moment, I might announce concerning a nation or kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. However, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I had planned to do to it. At another time, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. However, if it does what is evil in my sight by not listening to me, I will relent concerning the good I had said I would do for it. So now, say to the men of Judah and to the residents of Jerusalem, This is what the Lord says, Look, I am about to bring harm to you and make plans against you. Turn now, each from your evil way, and correct your ways and your deeds. But they will say, It's hopeless. We will continue to follow our plans, and each of us will continue to act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Ask among the nations, who has heard things like these? 
Virgin Israel has done a most horrible thing. Does the snow of Lebanon ever leave the highland crags? Or does cold water water flowing from a distance ever fail? Yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols that make them stumble in their ways on the ancient roads and make them walk on new paths, not the highway. They've made their land a horror, a perpetual object of scorn. All who pass by it will be appalled and shake their heads. I will scatter them before the enemy like the east wind. I will show them my back and not my face on the day of their calamity. Then certain ones said, Come, let's make plans against Jeremiah. For instruction will never be lost from the priest or counsel from the wise or a word from the prophet. Come, let's denounce him and pay no attention to his words. Pay attention to me, Lord. Hear what my opponents are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they have dug a pit for me. Remember how I stood before you to speak good on their behalf, to turn your anger for them. Therefore hand their children over to famine and give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed, their husbands slain by deadly disease, their young men struck down by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring raiders against them. For they've dug a pit to capture me and have hidden snares for my feet. But you, Lord, know all their deadly plots against me. Do not wipe out their iniquity. Do not blot out their sin before you. Let them be forced to stumble before you. Deal with them in your the time of your anger. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Now Saul was breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, and he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, uh, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the streets called Straight, the Lord said to him, in the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarshish named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Ah, uh, Lord, Ananias answered, I, I have heard from many people people about this man, how much uh, harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house, and he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul? The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. 
All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who is causing havoc for those who called on his name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plot, so they were watching the gates day and night intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarshish. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. As Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who urged him, Don't delay in coming with us. Peter got up and went with him. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs, and all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with him. Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down and prayed, and turning toward the body, said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. Thank you, Lord, for the the word that you've given us today. May it build us up and edify us in Jesus' name. Good day, friends, and Godspeed.